You're listening to the Verse Podcast. Welcome to today's online launch event hosted by the Institute for Policy Research at the University of Bath, as well as the University's Nationalism, Populism and Radicalism Research Cluster, along with Verso Books. Really happy to be joined by several colleagues from the university and beyond today to celebrate the launch of Reactionary Democracy, How Racism and the Populist Far-Right Became Mainstream, a new book from Aurelien Mondon and Aaron Winter. My name's Fran Amory, I'm a senior lecturer in politics at the University of Bath and my colleague at the University of Bath. Uh, Aurelien's research focuses on the impact of racism and populism in liberal democracies and the mainstreaming of far-right politics through elite discourses. His first book, The Mainstreaming of the Extreme Right in France and Australia, A Populist Hegemony, was published in 2013, and he recently co-edited After Charlie Hebdo, Terror, Racism and Free Speech, published with said books. Next, we have Aaron Winter, who is Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the University of East London. Aaron's research is on racism in the far right with a focus on mainstreaming and violence. He is a co-editor of Historical Perspectives on Organised Crime and Terrorism with Routledge. Book coming out this year, I think, Searching the Far Right Theory, Method, Practice. Joining Aurelian and Aaron, we are incredibly lucky to have Chantelle Lewis and Tiso Regis from the Surviving Society podcast. If you haven't listened to Surviving Society before, you are really missing out. They've had some absolutely fantastic guests on the podcast as well, so do give it a listen. In addition to hosting Surviving Society, Chantelle is a part-time PhD student in the Sociology Department of Section Race, Class and Gender, Programme Director of the Leading Roots campaign Black in Academia, and is on the board for the International Centre on Racism at Edge Hill University. Tiso is a full-time PhD student in the Geography Department at UCL, also a recipient of the Windsor Fellowship Scholarship. He is also a member of the board for the International Centre for Racism at Edge Hill, and his research interests cover whiteness, conviviality, race, multiculturalism, critical race theory, epistemology, and history. So onto the book, we're going to be discussing the core argument of the book, which is that democracy is not necessarily progressive, will only be progressive if we make it. So what Aurelian and Aaron call reactionary democracy is the use of the concept of democracy and its associated understanding of the power of the people for reactionary ends. Mapping the construction and evolution of racism in the US, UK and France, Aurelian and Aaron explore the ways in which the far right has engaged in a process of reconstruction and how it has impacted on and entered the mainstream, debunking myths that suggest that the popular appeal and support of far right politics comes purely from the people. They demonstrate that instead the mainstreaming of the far right has more to do with the top-down process they argue that attention must be paid to the way that elite discourses in the media, politics and academia have distracted from systemic failure and inequalities. And we can witness that in what they call populist hype, but also in the hijacking of things we might normally see as progressive liberal tropes, such as free speech. Now, this is obviously an incredibly timely book. I think it can really help us make sense. I should say liberal racist responses to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I'm sure you will have plenty on that, so I'll just end my introduction by summarising the closing argument of the book, which is that we urgently need to counter these trends, and this requires democracy to be anti-racist, as well as anti-sexist, anti-classist, and against any and every form of oppression and where they intersect. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I will kick off the discussion by handing over to Chantelle and Tiso. 
Thank you so much for that introduction, Fran. That was brilliant. It was so succinct as well. It's quite a difficult introduction to follow. Thank you so, so much for having us in conversation for your book launch, Aaron and Aurelian. If you haven't listened to the podcast before, Aaron and Aurelian are people that we really look up to and their scholarship has inspired us so much, particularly how we think more critically about the far right and the mainstream of the far right. Just to say before we kick off with some questions. Me and Tiso have been struggling through remote podcasting over the past three months. Very different way of recording conversations and events, obviously, because you haven't got the personal rapport, physical touch, whatever, people. So it is things that we say to guests as when we're doing remote podcasting is to remember that when we're in this moment remotely, a remote moment of solidarity, well, usually when we're in person, we, me and Tiso, make a point of making that very much apparent. So I feel like it's important that we say that every time we do these events and record these things remotely. First question, can you tell us about the origins of the book? It's clear throughout the book that the citations, who you cite, where you both were, when you were thinking about writing this book, um, but any significant moments that in particular that led you to getting to this conceptualization and writing of this. I'm also going to say that I'm actually quite nervous. You might hear that in my voice. <laughs> Let me just say that as well. No, you're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. I'm you're good. Okay, you're good. I'm good. <laughs> you're nervous. But yeah, guys, tell us about the origins of the book. It comes back to maybe five or six years ago when we met uh, at, a, at a sociology event. And, uh, and since then, pretty much been renting regularly on a daily basis at each other about the state of things what has caused frustrations in our work in a way, things that we've been working on for a long time, whether it's the extreme right, the far right, mainstreaming, how it's not always tackled the same way as the extreme right or the far right. What came up in a lot of our, of our conversations in a way is something, these kind of tensions between, between what we call illiberal racism and what, and what we call liberal racism and, and how our focus on the extreme right on the more kind of extreme, violent, but also more entertaining forms of such politics have diverted us away from from the kind of systemic uh, oppression that we see in our societies. And, and what we try to do here is, is kind of really shine a light on responsibility of, of our elite. Uh, and what we mean by elite is uh, mostly politicians, of course, but also the media in general, not just the right-wing media and tabloids, but the media in general, uh, but also academics as well, the people who have access to shaping public discourse, shaping the agenda. And what we try to do is shine a light on, on, on them and they have shirked their responsibility in many ways by, by propping up the far right instead of combating it fully. And so what we're demanding is more accountability here. I sort of share those thoughts and, and the experience of <laughs> ranting daily. In one hand, it's that experience is both sort of a shared anti-racism and a, a discussion that's gone on for many years. I guess one of the things that we share not only anti-opposition to forms of racism, but interest and engagement and a, and a frustration with the things where society tells itself about racism, who the racists are, what racism is or is not, in a way that conceals and perpetuates systemic racist inequalities and oppressions. I think that we, we also feel a duty, not only as members of society, as academics, we see being done some sort of form of objectivity, or under this idea that this is what the people tell us. And these kind of, these misnarratives being perpetuated by academics, we're supposed to deconstruct and analyze those. And in that sense, we want, I think we wanted to both challenge racism, how it operates on many fronts, including academia. Initially, my first foray into the kind of exploring the far right was purely as you kind of like in electoral, electoral terms. 
So the rising for the far right, the cyclical nature of, a, of the far right. And that was the, the kind of dominant narrative. But as I kind of went further, I thought, well, why is this thing still persisting? So when I picked up your book, I thought, yeah, this kind of explains it a bit more. It, it digs a bit deeper. And it tried to explain why this thing persists. And this kind of, I think your breakdown between what is liberal racism and illiberal racism, that's what's hidden. Because when most people understand the argument at the far right, that's racism. Nazis, that's racism. With this scholarship as well, and particularly in this book, I feel like it's such a cathartic read. When you come up against liberal racism, it's so much harder to name and also fight in itself. And the way that those sorts of racism separate themselves from illiberal racism, it can be such a disjointed feeling within the everyday. So for me, like as well as it being such an amazing piece of scholarship that has helped me with my writing, the way I think about things, it's also helped me within my everyday to understand how people are using this language and using this way of talking about race in a way to leverage this type of liberal racism on a personal level as well as I thinking about my politics it's been a really important piece of work to understand how that has been particularly over the past sort of 10 years really mobilized it's, it's incredible to hear you, you two say say this and it's uh, very humbling but it's also particularly interesting uh, I think because for me, uh, coming coming from France, it's it's been quite a quite a learning curve in a way uh, to to understand what, what racism uh, was. Uh, obviously, from a very different different point of view. But uh, you know, even though I always considered myself anti-racist, and it, you know, it's it's nice of Aaron to say we both wrote it as you know as anti-racist. I think the anti-racist I was when I was eighteen is very different to the anti-racist I am now uh, in many ways. And the anti-racist I was when I was eighteen was was couched in the ideas of French universalism. The fact you know, in France, we don't see race. In France, you're just French and all that. And, uh, and how much I, have, I had absorbed, absorbed a lot of that throughout my schooling, throughout my, the way uh, history is taught there. Uh, of course, history has many problems with the way it's taught here as well, with regard to empire and things like that. And, and to me, deconstructing that over the years, and particularly over the last kind of eight, nine years, I think, uh, and, 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 uh, and since my PhD, really, I think has been, has been very helpful. So it's kind of nice to see it coming together so well in this book. And I'm, I'm usually indebted, obviously, to, to Aaron and, uh, and the work that he's done on this. Uh, and I think what really struck us is, is how easy it is to, to fall in the comfort of, of, of a liberal racist society. Have this kind of other, uh, and, and again, like here, we, we're usually indebted to all the people who have worked on post-race and, and, and all these kind of things, or even, even uh, new racism with Balibar or, or post-race uh, Lentin, Goldberg, and so on. And how easy it is to fall in the comfort of this idea of post-racial society. You know, the idea that after the Second World War, after kind of the civil rights movement in the US, things, things got better eventually. We overcome, we overcome race uh, and eventually it led to the election of, of Barack Obama. And, and that's it, you know, we live in some kind of post-race world where of course racism happens, but it happens in kind of happenstance. It happens in like kind of explosions of evil that, that everyone will denounce, pretty much everyone, you know, even Nigel Farage would say that, but the terrorist, uh, a white supremacist terrorist attack is terrible. Marine Le Pen will say that as well. And so it, it kind of prevents us from really thinking about the other side of racism, which is the systemic one, the one that most of us are participating in, uh, and certainly that benefited from a lot. And so I think this is really what we wanted to kind of uncover and bring back again to the fore, as, as many of us have done. So hopefully, uh, I mean, it's nice to hear from you too that, that it kind of worked. Yeah, I mean, thank you. It really means a lot you saying that, and um, it is quite humbling. When I started my PhD was uh, working on the far right in America in the post-civil rights era, and I found myself reading, going to seminars, talking to everyone who talked about this concept of extremism, which as we know has become sort of a much more hot topic. 
and everyone seemed so worried about what was how they were going to affect the mainstream and rarely questioned any of the policies structures of both society and the mainstream during periods where there was you know i mean everyday bordering um and celebrating this this notion of progress and, and oftentimes in these rooms no one who would have been affected by racism was had discussions everyone was patting themselves on the back saying how 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 great progress was and when when someone spoke up they would be well that's the things far progress needs to be slow the only thing they seemed to urgently worry about was whether the far right was going to penetrate the mainstream and i mean for me personally i mean i sort of i've hesitated sort of speaking about myself but like because I sort of, I come from a family, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, I saw the way in which that moment has become the sort of defeat of Nazism and the liberation of so many, many sort of persecuted groups from the concentration camps um, was taken as a pat on the back by societies that continue to perpetuate systemic racism and use this as a model. And I think this is where the, the post-race idea and the, the, the liberal racism comes in, where the Nazism, the sort of the the defeated, much later Jim Crow, and the far right becomes a remnant of that old order that we need to stop a serious lack of questioning of how the society itself operated. Um, and it, it was interesting for me as a sociologist who was taught that you need to deconstruct these structures, that what is systemic, structural, institutional, what in relation to power was paramount. But in far right studies, that was not the case. Is it because like the far right are easy to caricature, like the Nazis, Rages of Lost Art, these are cartoon like, figures, they stand out and it's easy to call out. So it also kind of for me, when I think of it, kind of attaches onto that enlightenment idea of progress. We're always marching forward. So we beat the Nazis, civil rights, this linear line of keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. And any kind of deviation from that, they're like outliers. If someone's a racist in your town, that's an outlier. Society's marches forward. This is how kind of see these things. And it's difficult to talk about racism if we see it as an outlier when it's clearly systemic. But systemic is hard to conceptualize and speak about in the same way than as we speak about a Nazi in your day to day. I mean, I think, I think you're spot on. And I think the, the way like liberalism has been very, very clever at kind of owning up to moments of progress that actually quite often it, it, it fought against. Uh, and we try to kind of deconstruct that uh, partly, although that's not the, the aim of the book, and the aim of the book is very much to focus on, the, on racism and the far right. We try to look into it in, in one of the chapters, uh, how liberalism, as, as Aaron was saying, you know, the pat on the back after the Second World War, and we still see it today, the way, the way some people talk about Winston Churchill as, you know, being the kind of victor of a Nazism. Winston Churchill was hardly innocent in, in, in uh, propagating racist theories at the time. And this pat on the back and this, the way liberalism has managed to, to make us believe that progress was inevitable and it would just take time. We would just have to wait. And all this progress was thanks to liberalism. And if we waited long enough, everything would be fine. Not just in, in questions of race, I think has, has worked a lot and still works. And I think we could see it with, with uh, the recent kind of Black Lives Matter protest, the way they kind of moved to, to the UK. And there was this kind of moment of hope and awakening and realizing, and you could see like institutions putting out kind of statements that, that were unseen before, whether of course they live, they live up to actions is, is another matter, of course, but Back still things that- statements. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Things that seem quite different. But then what happens is you have a demonstration on the weekend by the far right, by Britain first, you have this guy urinating on black and all these things. And we go back to the good old kind of liberal racism, but that is a good excuse for us not to, to no longer look at liberal racism in a way. It's like the illiberal racist and if we didn't have Britain first, we didn't have the EDL, we didn't have that, then we would be fine. But of course, that's not true. 
because racism goes far beyond these people. Racism is entrenched in, in more, most of our institutions, uh, and the extreme right here plays, plays a, a nice kind of decoy or scapegoat to some extent, so that we don't look at ourselves enough. Before I ask you next question about conceptualising liberal and illiberal racism, so I think it would be good to get a definition out there for people that haven't necessarily read the book, but one of the things that has definitely been a process for me and that the book has really helped me with is trying to remove the personal from the racism. And I'm not saying to denounce personal or lived experience has been embedded in interpersonal experiences of illiberal racism. It makes it really difficult to see liberal racism as just as important and if not more important than those liberal racisms and that's one of the things i think we definitely saw on the weekend like people that would ne- that would often be on our side with regard to these things it's kind of caricaturing and misunderstanding the groups that are actually out there presenting and being fascist for particularly for black people that have been around very very violent symbolic and interpersonal illiberal racisms it makes it the arguments that you make even though they're really important in the book it's a long process of coming to terms with and unlearning because if we don't if we don't recognize the importance of the liberal racisms then we get stuck in the liberal racisms which mean we don't really understand who the enemy is i don't necessarily think i've I've always at the destination of understanding that liberal racism is is the clear enemy but I think it's a process that we have to keep going over and over again, like rethinking, okay, who is actually doing this? Who is here? What is happening? Like, and, and, and particularly as a black woman, it is, very, it is very difficult to do that because you have so right. much interpersonal issues with the liberal racism, but we still have to keep coming back to what are these liberal racisms? How are they manifested? Who's pulling the strings? What is happening? And who are, and just, I mean, I, th- I hope we're going to talk about this maybe in the discussion, the socioeconomic background of the majority of people that were at that march, they're all middle, like, majority of them are middle class. What unites them? Racism and whiteness often. If we go into the next question on liberal and illiberal racism, sort of breaking that down for everyone. We've given the examples um, from World War II as a useful signifier of people's misrecognitions and misunderstandings of racism. But yeah, it would you break it down really clearly in the book. But if you could, um, both, maybe one of you could do liberal racism, the other one could do illiberal racism. Well, this, this is the, how intertwined they are as well. Um, I think we have to note that in some ways, these are conceptual constructions of ours, but also they're constructions in the way they're used to displace things. So in a sense, illiberal racism is is basically constructed as racism, but it's placeholder as a concept for all those things that we we think now are bad. Biological racism, slavery, in some countries colonialism, but clearly we have to talk about that as well, whether it's acknowledged as such. Racist terrorism, Jim Crow segregation. But it's not to say these are not, not illiberal and they're not forms of racism. But what they do is construct racism as as simultaneously old of the past, dead and defeated largely, or manifesting in remnants of the past in the current far right. And the way the far right is constructed to go also to both of the comments you both made is it's constructed as often working class, uneducated, it is, it's constructed as something that is distant from the liberal, educated, middle-class elite 
who matter in society and they're constructed as who matter. And the problem is, is that it ignores both the intellectual and elite pr production of racism, uh, enslavement and slave trading and colonialism and the policies back in the day and today that are run by, you know, old Etonians, if you will. Liberal racism is that construction which says, and I think we're, we're indebted to post-race theory and, and colorblind, and theories of colorblind racism. It's that racism that does not talk about race as a physical, biological thing. It does not have recourse to the old language the brutal, obvious, overt language of traditional or liberal racisms and often codifies it in cultural differences or in notions of liberal values. Like, they oppress women, we don't. We believe in free speech and talking about, you know, controversial issues, they don't. And in a sense, that's been highly weaponized against Muslims in the past number of years. But I think the other thing that it does is it's built upon a, the liberal one is based on a, a, a landscape of, of post-race, of that we've made progress, we've defeated all the liberal racism, and we're all equal now. And what that does is it sets up a structure where if someone claims racism, they're accused of, or in the intellectual dark web terms, conspiracy theories. So systemic racism is a conspiracy theory, mm. or patriarchy is a conspiracy theory or the fact that if all things are equal, if you criticize whiteness or white structures, you are a reverse racist. And I think one of the things that we try to get at, and I'll sort of finish it up so I'll let Aurelian do it, but one of the things that we have to remember is, is that, and I, I take the issue of statues, the idea of these were people from another time. They're from an illiberal period that we no longer find acceptable. Well, A, that assumes that people thought that was acceptable now, and I'm sure the, the targets of it did not, as well as a lot of other sort of anti-racists. But the other issue is, is that for something that was long ago defeated, it sure has a presence today, and you're still defending that presence. And this is where you start to see that blurring. Blurriness is quite important here as well. And, and to go back to, to the point that Tissot was making about liberalism as, as the kind of unquestionable center and unquestionable kind of good almost in our society. You know, we need to protect liberalism. We need to protect liberal democracy. Um, what we try to look at as well in the book, and, and, and that, that's where in a way the kind of illiberal racism comes in as important, is we've seen the coverage politicians as well, this kind of idea that nowadays in politics, uh, in politics and in, in, in democracies that are more and more distrusted for more and more good reasons, where power is held into in, in, within few hands, where the media, again, is controlled uh, by few people, uh, and where, where speech is, is not equal by any stretch of the imagination. Some people have far more public uh, presence than others. Um, you have this idea that now we have liberalism versus the far right, or liberalism versus populism, and I put populism in, uh, you know, in inverted commas here. And... And I think that that's a big problem because, because that, that reifies liberalism as the, as the mainstream, as the center, and as something essentially good versus something that's very bad, the far right, the extreme right, racist, illegal racist, and things like that. And that prevents us from thinking outside of that. And that prevents us from, A, looking at liberalism critically, as we should, and at the failings of liberalism, which are many, and also looking at other alternatives, potentially. And it doesn't matter what the, uh, the other alternatives are, but at least looking at them. And we can't look at them because anything that's outside of liberalism is seen as either populism or radical or, or it's not going to work and all these kind of things. And so we, we're really limiting our democracy here. And that's, that's what we call, in a way, re reactionary democracy. The idea that democracy nowadays is either the liberal status quo, which doesn't work for most people, 
and hasn't fulfilled its, its goals over far right and populism. Uh, and, and to us, we need another. It seems that when you look at it that way, liberalism is always like, it's almost like the Francis Fukuyama's argument. It's, it's triumphant, right? Mm -hmm. And it places itself as opposed to all these other forms like fascism, communism, and we appear to always be the direct opposite. But right now, at this time, the argument seems to be internally, right? So we have a, a river up to our face and we don't know how to, how to react or what to do because these problems still persist, right? The question is, if we, before we were the opposite of what we were fighting against, but right now, the mirror is up to the same problems we've always faced, poverty, sexism, racism, and we still haven't defeated them. So we don't know, it's an existential question, who are we? And you see that in far-right movements, especially in some of the far-right movements, they ask the question like, who are we? Where do we go from here? This is the kind of question that people keep asking. So your book kind of demonstrates that kind of that tension quite well, I think. I mean, I think one of the problems is the who are we is, is posed as a, as a, particularly from sort of like liberal speakers or scholars, is, mm, it's mm. posed as a universal question. And I think part of the racism of liberalism is not what it codes or what it conceals, but in the way it says, don't worry, people, we're managing the situation for you. <laughs> you'll wait, you'll be patient, and all these inequalities will eventually, if other people are ready, not me, those other people, will get, will get to you. And I think, I think that's also the limiting of the horizons that we talk about. And then when you do have an yeah. insurgency, or you do construct a radical alternative, it ends up to be something that is, um, you've already legitimized as the people's will. It's already the mm -hmm. reaffirmation of those structures as allegedly from people who are in need of representation. The people who are most deeply affected by, for example, racism, are not given that representation or that radical alternative. And you can see that in the response to the, to the protests. It's like, yeah, yeah, but don't go too far. Yeah, but don't do that. Let's have a discussion. Let's get around the statue, have a discussion. And, and by the way, if we're all just liberal, I know who's going to win. And I'm going to tell you, you'll all be happy. That's part of the problem. The construction of the who are we as well is, is quite interesting in, um, in how, I mean, it, it builds again on what, what Aaron was saying, in, like who is the we and who is given, given space and air as the we. And, and what we see here is that the we is either the liberal middle class who are good and then or it could be also quite often a new touching class, which, is, which we see as a construction in and of itself. But this working class has been very useful in a way as a, as a, uh, as a construction for, for, for the elite, not for the white working class itself, which we don't, don't believe actually. Yeah, as, as we said, is, is a construction. It's been very useful because it's allowed the elite to speak for the people, but also to kind of deflect their responsibility, which is like, look, yes, we put in border protections. Yes, people are dying trying to come to our countries and things like that, but that's what the people want. And who else but the working class to represent the people? And of course, this is based on, on kind of really shoddy data. Wherever you look at, whether you look at it in France, uh, in, the, in the US uh, for, for the election of Donald Trump or, or for Brexit or for UKIP, these were not working class moments. Even though our media, both the tabloids, the right wing media, but also the, the liberal media, Guardian, for example, bought into that idea of the working class revolt, you know, giving, like, giving a lot of space to, uh, to, to so-called populism and so on and so forth. And I mean, this is incredibly problematic because it's based on, on flawed data. Uh, most of us, uh, you can look at it in the book, there's all the data there and also a citation to other people like Danny Dorling, who have done a lot of work on this as well. A lot of these movements are very much elite-led, but also elite-supported. Cross-sections of voters in the US still voted for Hillary Clinton in fewer numbers than for Barack Obama, but still more than Donald Trump. The people who elected Donald Trump were white, educated people. And there were, of course, some working class people who voted for them. But it's not the bulk of the vote. Uh, Brexit is the same thing. Um, and again, the general election in 2019, as Danny Dorling has shown, 
uh, and as you shared with us, uh, Chantelle, uh, is not the fall of a red wall is not the fall of a red wall. It's just again, uh, you know, if you take abstention into account and all these kind of things, you can see that the working class will switch off more and more. And again, the people who are pushing these politics into power, people who are quite well off. One of the things that strikes me is is that when you read all these um, these updates, and you'll all see them on Twitter about what people are care about, what they're concerned about. You constantly see this, like, people don't want open borders. People don't want more immigrants. People want this. And you have this complete construction, not just of the people, but of the non-people, of who, do, who, who matters and who doesn't. For those people who are considered non-people, who are on the sharp end of those anti-immigrant politics or the racist politics, you're being told again and again, not just by politicians and, and tabloids, academics, you are not people, you don't matter. And one of the things that really strikes me is that it's not only that this the left behind thesis and the white working or the working class revolt thesis is racist and or is used, is weaponized in the service of racism or to conceal or justify or legitimize racism. But actually it doesn't work for anyone who's left behind because it serves completely corporate capitalist conservative interests. We see this with particularly the recent crisis. So just with regards to the reflections we're just having about the people and the left behind and how complicit the media and academia has been in this stuff just a final question how can we create scholarship that doesn't appease notions of the left behind and the people we think your work really helps with this stuff but it'd be really great opportunity now to particularly talk about the social sciences complicity in this because listen to you guys talk reading Danny's stuff, reading Gaminda's stuff, me, reading Michaela Benson's stuff. Like the thing that I really struggle with this is how clear it is who votes, who doesn't vote and who has the power. And if we're talking about, we're talking about the red wall, for example, the red wall, the majority of people who voted for Labour in 2017 just didn't vote. There wasn't a significant swing to Tory voting. They didn't vote. And the people that did vote Conservative are the people that are middle class again, that have their houses, that have come from a certain socioeconomic background. And Danny makes a really important comparison between a socioeconomic position of people that vote in Grimsby and how similar that is to the Tory heartlands in Essex. And I guess it would be really good to hear from you guys how we can really push against this stuff because it's just so factually inaccurate. It's so damaging the way we understand and can combat racism and the mainstream of it and i just feel like if now is the moment that people are listening we really need to grab this moment again and again like like what's been happening for decades and really say look this is what is going on very much like the point of the final chapter of a book i mean what we call for is more caring the way we talk about these issues and, and you've you know you've pretty much summarized all of them the way we talk about elections the way we talk about elections and how they link to democracy the way about who is who votes and who doesn't vote and, and why that matters uh the way we talk about the far right the way we talk about populism the way we link the far right to the people the way we link the far right to the working class and what we argue is uh, looking, particularly looking at the work we've done on the media and how that work in the media, uh, what, what's being said in the media with the working class reports, all these kind of things, you know, the working class voting for Trump, the Rust Belt voting for Trump, uh, the working class voting for Marine Le Pen. Uh, what we've seen is that this is an elite construction on the media and uh, on academics giving supporting but flawed evidence. And what we argue is that this leads to a dual process in a way. It leads to a process of legitimization of the far right. The far right 30 years ago 
was still powerful. There were still people voting for it, but it was a taboo. People were ashamed to vote for the far right, and most of the media would go against the far right. Uh, nowadays, the far right have become more and more. They are linked to the people, as they are linked, they vote, they have the voice of the people, the voice of the silent majority, which is, of course, all wrong. They this veneer of democracy they never had after the Second World War, because the Second World War was such a taboo that Jean-Marie Le Pen, it took him 20, 30 years to shake this off, to stop being compared to fascists, Nazis, and so on and so forth. Eventually, you give them a break, and you don't call them far-right or extreme-right anymore, you call them populists. You don't say that fascists and racists vote for them, you say that the working class vote for them. And of course, the working class in our, you know, in our societies is usually seen as quite progressive, as the kind of salt of the earth, all these kind of things, right? And so you, you can completely change about the far right. So you give them legitimacy, you also give their ideas some legitimacy by saying, well, that's what the people want. And so you get people like Nicolas Sarkozy in France in 2007 saying, look, I'm not racist, but if what the people want is more security, then we'll have to put that through, right? You get, you get the hostile environment in the UK, you get Trump and the wall, all these kind of things, but not just Trump and the wall, you get Obama and the deportations and all of that. And finally, so there's the process of legitimization of the far right and its ideas on one side, and then on the other side, you have a process of delegitimization, the process of delegitimization of the people. Because you associate the people with the far right who are still more or less rebelled in our society. And who is the people? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's the working class, but it's also all the kind of, uh, the working class is also kind of a, the most diverse section of our society. So you, demo, you demonize in a way and delegitimize democracy as such, and you're telling people, let us, as good liberals, rule for you uh, and don't worry about things because otherwise you'll get the far right. Uh, and so what we're looking at is this dual process of legitimization and delegitimization. And what we're asking and demanding, in, in fact, is accountability, but also more care in the way we talk about these issues. Uh, because these are real consequences when you have access to public discourse. Okay, I'm going to cut in there because I can see the questions. A good one to start with, how do the speakers recommend championing intersectionality without erasing the struggles and needs of other marginalized identities. Use it properly for a start. <laughs> Recognize for the scholarship of intersectionality starts with Kimberly Crenshaw and its origins are with black working class women and how they navigate employment and the law. So if you're talking about that, recognize that that is your starting point and don't misuse it. It's not about collecting different things that you think are intersections, recognize where it starts from. Day-to-day -day basis, and like, if we're not talking about academically, like in people's everyday lives, I think people need to stop reacting and start thinking when they speak to one another on your daily interactions, right? Because most of the stuff, like we, we are talking in an academic setting and it's very kind of removed, but in your day-to-day -day life, like we've been through all these struggles, we've been through feminism, we've had all these stuff going on. So right now people need to start thinking instead of reacting. And so that's what I would say in your data. You have to read, you have to engage with the scholarship and the, the, the voices of, of people with lived experience and activists. But I also think it's really important both to challenge the rights co-option of intersectionality yeah. as, as a weapon or as some sort of like modern demon. At the same time, be careful how we treat each other. We don't use it against each other in the way the right wants us to. Creating hierarchies and one-upmanship, engage with its complexity and its, its, its use for both understanding lived experiences and power and the complexity of our identities and our, and our experiences.
How do other forms of racism and ethnic discrimination, such as against the Dalits and Adivasis in India, fall within the discussion of Black Lives Matter? Does someone else want to take this? <laughs> I'm not sure I've got the energy. It's not an area of expertise of mine. On one hand, we're looking at racisms and we're looking at processes of racialization in, in relation to power. And that power can be both global and in given contexts. Again, I'm not, I'm not an expert in that subject, but I'm also acutely aware that for the past decade or so, in a context of increasing sort of right-wing insurgency, there has been a divide and rule played um, between sort of racialized groups, and we have to resist that too, both as, as we analyze them, but as we express solidarity in anti-racism. Contextual knowledge here is very, very important. And, and, and again, that's why probably we can't uh, comment on, on that so much. But I think, yeah, what Aaron said is, is, is very important that, that we think about these things as, as global, of course, uh, and, and, and localised, uh, but not either or. If you listen to what me and Tiso try and do on Surviving Society, it's very much an anti-racist endeavour which looks at collectivism of all racialised populations and white allies, etc. However, in fighting structural and systemic racism, you do need to have some racialised specificity because we are not all starting from the same place, in the same moment, with the same material and socioeconomic positions and cultural positions. And what I would say, it doesn't mean that you divorce yourself from having that collectivity, but there are moments where we do need to have that specificity. And I think for some black people in particular in this moment, it has been slightly disappointing to not see that specificity being focused on. And sometimes it looks like us calling for divide and rule it's not that it's not about that it's about asking for some specific examples or specifically talking to a particular racialized experience that doesn't mean that we're not recognizing the importance of collective anti-racism but we do need that specificity so building on the subject of who we are what should we be teaching our kids or what needs to change about the, what we teach our kids about british history and to raise awareness about racism in schools like I haven't grown up in the UK, uh, even though I'm very critical of the way French teaches history, which I think says, says something. And I think what's quite different, though, is that I think there's maybe a lot more material on how to do it better here than there is in France. Uh, there's, there's a lot more of, a, of an anti-racist tradition in the UK, a scholarly anti-racist tradition in the UK than there is in France. And so there's this kind of weird... Uh, we disconnect, but all, all of it seems to be here. There's some amazing scholars who have been working on this, on how to teach empire, on how to teach uh, colonialism, on how to teach racism uh, to kids. And it's all here. It's just not taken up. And again, who is it not taken up by? Not, it's not teachers who have a choice. It's not, uh, it's not the working class who has a choice. It's not the students, the pupils who have a choice. Uh, it's the people who are imposing these programs uh, on us on, again. And why? Because, well, it's, it serves certain purposes and certain interests. It, it's all there for us to change. And again, if we were in a democracy, it, you know, uh, or if we were in a democracy worthy of name, I think, you know, these things wouldn't even be questions anymore uh, because we have all the resources. That's what Tissa was saying. You know, all of the, this is time for us to kind of think and act because all of it, it's all there for us to take. It's been an urgent situation for a long time, I think. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem is you have is that this country, by and large, the powers that be, don't accept these things were a bad thing. They not only do not, they not accept that, they become more emboldened about it. And you can see this very clearly, the focus on education from Gove and Our Island Story, 
or the increasing prominence of someone who we call like one of the legitimizers, Toby Young, and the role of education in the reactionary backlash. This is not just a far right thing. This is the elite digging down and reasserting it. I mean, a while ago, we, we wrote a small piece in relation to um, a sort of Chelsea football take racists to uh, Auschwitz, which I thought was an odd reward and, a, and disrespectful. But no notion that there was racism in this country. There was a history of racism, and not only racism, but the implications of the violent, brutal, genocidal implications. That story can be told in this country and from this country. It's not only that it's not engaged with, they're actually publicly defending statues in front of our children. Children are seeing this. They're being told these are still up for debate, but more often than not, good. Because, you know, the Boy Scouts, or, you know, be defeating Nazis, or charity work. I think educational question is absolutely imperative, but I think it's a, it's a re, it requires a real fight. And I, and I do agree, there's some amazing material out there. Um, I don't want to pick and choose. Who you yeah, Rem, Remy Joseph Salisbury has absolutely. literally just published a report with Ronnie Mead about yeah. racism in schools and police presence in schools, which I recommend um, everyone read. But there is so much work on how to engage pedagogically with teaching children about colonialism, empire and racism. I think there's lots of information out there already. So I don't think when people say, what, what, what do we do? The, the answer is like, there's over like 100, what, 150 years plus of research and scholarship, not just academic, journalistic pieces. Like, yeah. Everything's out there, but it just takes work. But I feel people, it, it challenges things of the concept of nation and togetherness, because what we're, we're asking deep questions about what this nation is. And the narrative we've been told in school is that this nation, we're on the right side of history all the time. Yeah. Especially after 1945, we are definitely the good guys. So all this stuff you're talking about in Kenya, the Mau Mau, this is, it's all very awkward right now. And so as a black person, when I went to school and I discovered all this stuff, it's like someone's been lying to me all this, all this time, but it's not. So when I talked to my friends, I said, look, what you learned in school is the idea to be proactive. It's a proactive experience, right? So I've had to go up there myself and educate myself. So it's, learning doesn't stop at school. People are telling their kids to do stuff. They need to do stuff themselves. Go up there and be proactive because all the information is out there. I went to university, but I have to be proactive to do that and continue on. And so this is the thing I want to be proactive and do the work. So do we work with, within liberalism to redefine it and take a gradualist approach? Or can we overcome liberalism and replace it with, as Aurelian said, a new form of democracy? And how do we get to where we want to be? Well, I don't want to give any spoilers, but that's a conclusion of a book. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, ready. We don't have, uh, and that's why we don't make them, but we don't have any kind of ready-made uh, answers. We, we have our opinion, obviously, uh, uh, R&I, but, uh, but we felt that the book wasn't so much for us being prescriptive about what we feel is needed to overcome uh, the reactionary democracy that, uh, that we have. What we wanted to do with this book really was to map the current situation, which is that uh, we are illiberal racism, liberal racism, and now we're facing a moment of reactionary backlash, which we haven't talked about a lot uh, during this talk, but Aaron touched on it uh, a second ago, which is increasingly we actually have the mainstream right and uh, sometimes even the mainstream left kind of re-embracing the kind of more illiberal tropes of, of, of nationalism. And we even see eugenics coming back to, to academia, you know, something that used to be 
very squarely into the liberal camp recently. So what do we do with liberalism? Well, what, what we try to say, you know, try to show in the book, and try to kind of encourage people again in the book to, to look into more, is we need to take a critical look at liberalism and we need to give up on that idea that liberalism, as Tiso was saying, was is the kind of neutral, nice, warm center and we just need to protect it. Uh, and eventually, eventually, you know, women will be equal uh, and eventually, you know, uh, we'll all be fine and we'll all be equal. It will take a long time, you know, but eventually we will be okay. And I think what we're encouraging, and again, this is building on a wealth of scholarship, we're encouraging people to look at, at liberalism and at the progress that has been made under liberalism and whether actually that progress that has been made under liberalism, whether it's a progress of a, regarding the welfare state, regarding um, equality uh, uh, in, in any shape or form, whether it's because of liberalism or whether it is because of fights that took place against the liberal elite at a particular time. What we're seeing time and time again is that actually, you know, any progress we've made in any uh, section of society has been against the liberal elite. So it's a question of looking at whether, you know, if you want to see whether liberalism can be fixed, but, you know, we're not saying that it's necessarily, but we can't fix it. But what we're saying is we need to look at it. And if it can be fixed, well, let's do it. And if it can't, then we need to move on. But we need to look at it. And we're not at the moment. At the moment, we are still taking liberalism for granted uh, as, as, per, as per the end of history that Tissot was mentioning before, as if liberalism had one and there's no other horizon except maybe populism potentially fascism, and of course we don't want that. So we need to move beyond that uh, and see where we can go instead of it, I think. Yeah, I think, I think that's part of, part of the analysis is also sort of a attempt to expose these aspects of liberalism. Not that it's been co-opted, but that it's fundamentalment and liberal values and stuff like that. They're not just, there's a reason they're attracted to this. They want its crimes <laughs> effectively um, consolidated and, and legitimized. They're not merely choosing a liberalism or an enlightenment that, it, that ignores the bad things. The sexism, the homophobia, the racism, that's fundamental to it. I think that exposing this is part of, I guess, that sort of more conceptual and the liberal illiberal racism are some of the sort of the conceptual resources or tools that we, we hope to provide. And we hope to sort of see what people do with. Okay, so lots of good questions coming in. Thanks, everyone. Uh, so I'd like to hear a bit more about the ways in which you think the left might be implicated in the perpetuation of liberal racism. Oh, or listen. Chantel, Chantel, Chantel. Have we got an hour? Have we got another hour? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I don't know if I can necessarily talk very concise about this because I feel quite emotional about it. Not that emotion and anger aren't very useful tools. I feel like it enrages me so much that it's difficult to actually answer the question. Um, just with regards to just going back to what we were talking about um, with the white working class and the red wall stuff, like in particular thinking about the UK context now, seeing the Labour Party reorganise around this myth of, of the people and the left behind, again, reorganise again, is just so, it's so pernicious. And like, particularly thinking about, like, obviously we've been in a really, really like heightened period, but a few key moments for me stand out. Um, the general election result and them talking about um, Labour, Party people, Labour Party representatives and MPs talking about how they had lost their working class base, even though the majority of black and brown people voted for them again and they're from working class backgrounds. Number two, the election of Keir Starmer as Labour leader. Number three, the report which showed the anti-blackness and Islamophobia, as well as the anti-Semitism that's within the party and how that was responded to, and particularly thinking about the treatment of Diane Abbott 
And then we finish last week with Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner, Angela Rayner and Empire Deniers kneeling in response to the Black Lives Matter moment. Again, as I, you can see that I'm, that I'm angry, but I, and I'm, I, I am not objective. I've never objected anyway, but I, I'm particularly, particularly riled up about this stuff. And it is a very, very disappointing moment for UK left politics, I would say. Did you miss the, the young Blue Labour tweet as well? Chantel? Oh, jeez. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. What are they saying now? Family, it's not family values anymore. What yeah, is it? well, Young Blue Labour uh, tweeted or had in their in their Twitter uh, bio uh, uh, work, family, nation or something like that, which of course is the slogan of the fascist regime in France. So I mean, you know, and this is something we, we, we look at in France, this idea of, of, of aggressive patriotism, this idea of, you know, what what again the liberal media and the left wing media, you know, think of a guardian, for example, uh, has been kind of in many ways by giving platforms to, to people like, like Hillary Clinton after, uh, after Brexit and Trump saying that, you know, um, liberal democracies need to curb immigration to kind of fight the far right. Tony Blair said something very similar. Uh, New York Times has given quite a lot of coverage to, uh, to various kind of white supremacists, calling them uh, the guy next door. Uh, we had a dapper white uh, nationalist that was again minimizing, uh, euphemizing a lot of kind of nasty far-right politics and, and and of course then there's also the problem of false equivalences of false idea of debates of you know if you want to talk about immigration of race or racism you need to bring in a racist on your on your panel yeah. all the time on so-called liberal and even left-wing media of course the right-wing media does not do that they are in full-on kind of cultural wars uh, and the left hasn't kind of uh, got into its, uh, its its response properly uh, i feel like panel. it's i feel like it's really important to say as well sorry just before you come in aaron that yeah. like we're also seeing the left's complicity on a really clear attack on trans lives as well particularly right now we're seeing that it is absolutely disgraceful and it's shocking and it well it's not, it, in a way it's not shocking based on the things we've been talking about but it's really important to see how they're just co-opting, becoming so complicit with the violences that we see on the right. When we were talking before about the way the sort of the alternative or the insurgency is constructed from the right, oftentimes as a way of getting what would be allegedly labor voters in the working class, it actually carves out a hole on the left. Yeah. And you end up going for a Starmer. And I think Starmer and, and Biden are great examples of the way it's been carved out so that the spectrum has moved from the liberal center to the far right. We can see what happened with Corbyn, for example. When I raised divide and rule before, um, one of the things I was thinking about actually was the way in which the last campaign, weaponizing anti-Semitism mm -hmm. and making it out as if you would vote for overtly racist Islamophobic right was telling people not to be racist and vote Labour, and they have their own anti-Semitism problem. And it was just this complete divide and rule. And I, I really take Chantel's point about the fact that actually, particular there are differences and there are different contexts and different relations of power at given times and more generally. The idea that racism, a false form of anti-racism, can be used by the far right to get rid of a left. Very, very scary and damaging. And I think that's one of the things that we've 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 got to do on the left, that we have to not only ensure there is a left, but that, that it is, it is anti-racist. I'm going to um, roll together a few different questions now, since a few people have asked about similar themes. So a few people have asked if the speakers could talk a bit about the relationship between racism and capitalism, and also how we can dismantle systems of income inequality. Get rid of inheritance. <laughs> <laughs> 
don't think people are ready for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be a start, but uh, but I think, uh, I mean, it's, it's obviously not something that we, we've, we're focusing directly on in, in the book, uh, Capitalism, or even research more broadly, but uh, but it's something that obviously we, we're quite interested in. A lot of the, the, the themes we look at in the book echo that, uh, and I think liberalism, again, uh, is is partly, uh, well, partly fully to blame. Uh, it's, you know, it's for you to decide, but can we divorce liberalism from capitalism and can we have a capitalism that is democratic and that, that allows us to have actually properly equal rights? Well, that's, that's again, you know, if we look at history and if we look at the way things, things have been and are, uh, and are becoming worse, uh, it seems to me that, that there is a big problem here. So, so we, we might, again, it's, it goes back to, to, to imagination and to the fact that it is so hard for us. I mean, there's lots of kind of um, uh, sayings about this, but it's so hard to imagine a world without capitalism, even though we are heading straight for the world. We have so many crises at our hands, but capitalism is making a lot worse. I mean, just think of COVID and how many deaths we've had in this country because, because of politics of austerity that, that were unnecessary and that have, that have caused terrible hardship. Um, you know, think about, of course, you know, the, the climate crisis that's upon us, all these kind of things that, Capitalism doesn't seem to be able to handle. Uh, and so, of course, that leads to people suffering more than others. And, and you know, racialized minorities will be uh, at the forefront of, of this kind of uh, pain and suffering, as we've seen with COVID. You see the, the unbelievable sort of violence and loss because of both austerity, which obviously the impact of austerity has also informed the construction of the left behind and the scapegoating of immigrants. The damage done is also because, because of austerity and the cuts to the NHS, but also because they want to keep the economy going and want to bring it back. Um, I think one of the central sort of the, the points we make where this comes together also is, is the way in which there's a, a racism that informs the construction of the left behind as if it's a class issue, which would inherently be a problem with capitalism, but it's constructed as a race problem, mm -hmm. as, a, as a, a white victimization. Those who are perpetuating the left behind argument have no interest in a social safety net or welfare or equal pay or achieving equality. They don't want to achieve equality. They want to actually divide and rule the working class so, so that capitalism, the inequality is, is perpetuated and maintained. When it's a turn away from a class struggle to a race struggle, I mean, it's, yeah. um, it's, we're hoping it catches on. But, um... and, the, and the Red Name Trust has been really good <laughs> on class. And their report on this is really good and helpful mm. to our research. I find the problem with capitalism, it always kind of reduces down to a thing of winners and losers. There's always someone who's going to win and someone who's going to lose. And it's that kind of fear that prevents people seeing beyond this, because they feel like if they change something, they're going to be on the losing side. And until we kind of break that kind of chain, that cycle, we're kind of stuck in this. Even we're talking about the welfare state, it's taking care of someone who's, who's a loser. And we need to get out of that kind of mindset, that capitalist mindset, that someone's a winner, and there's always going to be a group of people that can lose. But... Until we kind of channel those ideas, I don't think we're going to get any further, really. I think it's also really important, coming back to the previous question on about the left's response to this stuff, like if we are, if we are imagining and trying to think about how we get anti-capitalist futures, is thinking about how those conversations about on the left and how thinking about socialism or anti-capitalism, how they can create liberal racisms, basically. And I think my frustration has been the lack of introspection on that. So obviously, like, fun capitalism, get rid of it. But coming back to Satnam stuff, probably on this, thinking about how intrinsic racism is within that process of trying to imagine these freedoms, and that's what I would always sort of come back to as much as I, yeah, I agree with capitalism being at the heart of this stuff. 
like it's always important to remember how like liberal racism plays its part within those um environments as well and how we have to call them out and stop them that takes us nicely on to what will i think have to be our last question saying in the day-to-day how can we help ourselves not to get distracted by illiberal racism when it's often so present and violent and turn our attention to the elite liberal racists what we argue in the book is and is of course it's very liberal racism we should uh, let you know the fascists march march on, on the streets of, of of any cities in in this country or anywhere and we should keep you know, fighting the kind of grassroots battles against illiberal forms of racism and the people who are at the sharp end on a daily basis day in day out uh, but i think we need to also we need to do both at the same time and it takes a lot of energy obviously and it takes a lot of energy if you, if you are yourself you know uh, facing this kind of uh, if you have the sharp end of this racism and of the illiberal racism as Shanta was talking about before uh, and, and and that's where i think to some extent uh, we saw our responsibility with with aaron as well and, and particularly my own responsibility there and and how i felt maybe i, I could help to some extent, I don't want to speak for the people who are at the sharp end of racism. They don't need me to speak for them, and I can't understand their, their experience. But I can certainly understand the experience of, of a white man uh, and of having privilege and of uh, and of you know benefiting from it. And how how if I look at it, it's it's just disgusting, and I shouldn't be accepting that in a democracy. So I think it's for all of us to kind of look at that and understand that actually, uh, you know, if we want a society rid of rid of privileges, it, it will mean that you know um, some of us will lose their privileges quite obviously, and uh, and I think we need to just fight for for losing our own privileges, the people who have them as well, and not let you know all the work to be done by the people who are racialized, who are um, who are suffering from gender inequality. Uh, again, you know, uh, we were talking about um, about all these kind of forms of oppressions which which interlinked at the end uh, and we need to kind of you know we will have to get rid of them and that means getting rid of all the privileges and that means everyone has a part to play to some extent particularly thinking about like the images that you see last week of the fascists i'm not saying that you ignore li- illiberal racism i'm saying that i think it's a process of reconciling with them and that doesn't mean accepting them it just means recognizing what part they play and there might be something that's worse that there is something that's possibly worse than that that being said i think it i just think it has to be something that you take a day at a time an hour at a time because it can be so illiberal racism can be so so draining it can be so pernicious particularly if you have lifelong experiences of that and when you see the images of the fascists last weekend it's so triggering for some people particularly those of us that have been around and lived around those people that have very intimate Uh, I've had very intimate negotiations with some people that present in that way and that will talk in that way. It's not an easy thing to come to terms with, but they're not necessarily, or that what's being being caricatured as what they are is necessarily the enemy. And also it's about recognising that the history of fascist, the history of fascists in the UK context, let's think about football hooliganisms, they're not they're not poor people like they're not necessarily people that we share a material um material conditions um with that often they've been secure in their employment their middle class like we've already we've already seen that the guy that was being carried out of the march last weekend he's an ex-detective on a police pension so one of the things that i do worry about is when we're calling out actually i need to think like these are liberal races are something that i've experienced it's like yes they are but if we present them as a certain demographic of people, we miss a massive other group of people and we don't beat them because we don't understand who they are. And we have to recognise how that liberal racism plays into who we think the enemy is. And I'm not trying to defend people here. I'm just trying to critique the idea of who presents illiberal racism. 
I think um, in your day to day, I think it's it's very, it's very difficult, isn't it? So, I think in, in people's day to day, what what do you do? I think the thing is is about being aware, right? So, awareness of where you are and who you're speaking to. I think that's I think that's a key thing because I think most people want to hear, especially right in this current moment, all they want to hear is stories of my pain, of my pain, what I've been through. That's I don't want to share my pain anymore. We hear this all the time. There's been a big a big a big push for this on TV that you see. I just want people now to kind of think. Listen, what can I do? And it's about it's just being thinking in the situation who you're talking to. And in academia. Yeah, and in academia. Yeah. I think it's really important about keeping the eye on sort of the, the, the liberal and not just on the liberal, is to look at, at the discussion and debates around the statues. Is you have people far right on the street, you have um, libertarian online platforms. You have academics, you have people in parliament and in government, you have all sectors of society consolidating around this point. And th these same interests and these same sort of objects or identifications with both racism, hegemonic tradition, um, Britain's greatness and empire. They, they don't share a class. They don't share occupations. They share an ideological interest and often a racial identification. And I say often, not always. At the same time, they may be playing off each other. Like some saying, they don't represent us. Or they're a fringe. They're fringe extremists. And it's important, I think, and I, try, I think we try to highlight this in the book, is that it's not that you need to focus on one and not the other. But you need to see the relationships between them yeah. to know how this operates and how it's justified and how it's concealed. Thank you so much, everyone. I'm going to have to stop you there. Thank you so much all of you Aurelian, Aaron, Chantel and Tiso that was an absolutely brilliant discussion I'm sure everyone found it as fascinating and as engaging as I did so thank you all four of you thank you those of you at home uh, for joining us today as well as I mentioned earlier the session will be available as a podcast and thank you again to Geordie working on the recording uh, bye from all of us check out Surviving Society oh, oh do <laughs> yeah, Surviving Society <laughs>